Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, we'll read verse 1, which is uh, the heading for 1 to 18. And then we'll read the second illustration that uh, Jesus uses to underscore the principle from verse 1. That illustration is at verses 5 to 8. Here, today, Jesus teaches us how to pray. Now, if you've been with us in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, you know that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus addressed the teaching of the Pharisees. Here in chapter 6, he addresses the practice of the Pharisees. First, he corrects their teaching or their doctrine. Then he corrects their practice or their piety. He criticizes the Pharisees for having an outward, externalized religion that doesn't flow from the heart in sincerity before God. It doesn't flow out of trusting in God. They were, he calls them, hypocrites, you may remember. They were uh, just putting on a show for people. They were play actors. So whatever Jesus later means in chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you may not be judged, he certainly doesn't mean you can't contradict false teaching or false living. Faithful teachers in the church, like Jesus, need to, and following his example, need to correct error, errors of doctrine or errors of practice. Why? Because it isn't loving to let people just go on believing a lie or living a lie. It is loving to speak the truth in love into that lie for the well-being of the person you're talking to. That's what Jesus is doing when he just confronts the religious leaders of his day for their hypocrisy. Now last week we saw that uh, the Pharisees called attention to their giving so that people would applaud them. It was all outward show. Here he calls attention to their praying to, again, be noticed by others. And by contrast, we're going to see Jesus wants us, his disciples, to pray from a different, very different motivation, with a very different awareness of who God is, who he is to us, and who we are to him, and prayer to flow from that. And so, as we come to the passage, I ask you, why do we pray the way that we do? What is it that motivates us? Jesus is here to help and instruct us. So let me invite you to give your attention to this theme, Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 1, and then verse 5 through 8. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. 
For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Amen. This is God's Word. May He write it on our hearts. Let's look to Him in prayer. Father, do so. Grant that your word would teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness that the man or woman, the boy or girl, uh, would be equipped for every good work. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So he doesn't want us to be like hypocrites who, who don't know God, and so they seek to impress other people. And he wants us to pray with sincerity and honesty as those who do know God, like children, to our loving Father in heaven. Now that's not easily done. It's easy to say. True disciples need to grow in these things. That's why he has to teach them to us. A man took his young son to town to run errands. And when lunchtime arrived, they went to a familiar diner to grab a sandwich. And the father sat on one of the stools at the counter and he lifted up his son and set him on a stool next to him and they ordered lunch. And when the waiter brought the food, the father said, Son, we'll just have a silent prayer. Dad got through praying first and waited for the boy to finish his prayer. But he just sat with his head bowed for an unusually long time. When he finally looked up, his father asked him, What in the world were you praying about all that time? And with the innocence of a child, he replied, How do I know? It was a silent prayer. (laughs) Well, how are your prayers? Look, some of you don't pray. And you don't care that you don't pray. Because you're not children of God. You don't think God matters, and so you don't talk to God as your Heavenly Father. Maybe you're an atheist. If you don't pray, you're certainly a practical, functional atheist, whatever your profession. And I want you to know that we're glad that you're here. And we want you to know a Father who hears the prayers of His people. Now, many of you are children of God, but but you, like me, pray very little or very poorly, and you feel bad about that. God does matter to you, and you know that you should pray, and you do want to pray, but you still struggle to pray. Most of us, I think, are in that last group. We're very aware that our prayers aren't what they ought to be. We believe in prayer. We just have a hard time making time for it or trusting God when we do, that he hears us or cares or believing that our prayers make a difference. Our, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. Uh, or we, we start to pray about something and suddenly we're daydreaming about the garden or about sports or about sex or about a thousand other things. And then we wonder, how did I get there? I was talking to God. This seems really inappropriate. It would be easy then to beat you down over your prayerlessness. It would be easy to use this text as a heavy stick to pound on your back. 
That's easy to do. And the challenge, though, is to actually build us all up in prayer, to help us all pour out our souls to God in prayer, even more genuinely. That's Jesus' reason for teaching here. That's what he's doing. He isn't being cruel to weak believers. He isn't being harsh, like a harsh taskmaster demanding you make bricks without straw. And he isn't waiting to pounce on you when you finally do show up at the throne of grace after a couple of days, couple of weeks, or a couple of months for the first time, honestly. He's not waiting to pounce on you. In fact, he wants to help us. And he wants us help to come to the God who helps us and talk to children and talk to God like children to a father in heaven. And so he teaches us to pray. Now, what does he teach us? He teaches us how not to pray. Two points about that. And he teaches us how to pray. Two points about that. The first thing I want you to see how not to pray. Verse five, he says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So notice the places they go to pray. Uh, they They pray in the synagogue, which is understandable. They're professing believers. They pray at the street corner because when the trumpet sounded in Jerusalem three times a day to call the people to prayer, some people weren't in the synagogue and they weren't at home. And some people actually arranged it so that they'd be on the, the, the really well-traveled street corner in two directions so that they could be widely seen to be doing their acts of piety in front of people. They want as many people as possible seeing them pray. They want to be applauded for their piety. What's behind that? Well, they're full of pride, and so they're putting off a show. They want people to say, look how religious that man is. Look how godly and spiritual that woman is. I mean, my, how impressive they are as a believer who really follows the Lord. They've got it all together. I need to be more like them. This is what they want people to think of them. And so they crave the applause of people. And they crave that applause because they're not content with the applause, we might say, or the approval, we might say, or the welcome, the loving embrace of their Father in Heaven. They're not satisfied with being His and having Him hear them. They aren't secure in his love. They aren't secure in their identity as his beloved children. And so they're seeking their love outside in others. They're seeking their sense of security in what other people think of them. They're trying to gain a reputation because they don't know they have a reputation before the throne of God through the righteousness of Christ accounted to them. And they are his beloved people. So they long to be applauded by others. And Jesus says they will be, and that's what they get. That's their reward. They want applause. They get applause. They got all they were looking for. They will, I think we could say in the words of Jesus, not hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. But they got the well done they wanted. In my high school ministry days, uh, We saw a lot of this in the see you at the poll events. Now, maybe you've been involved. I 
I was a youth leader involved in these things, so I'm picking at me. These were prayer meetings, if you don't know what they are, for students uh, to gather at the flagpole on the school grounds and uh, to pray. Now look, many people, many genuine Christians participated quite sincerely, no doubt. But too often, the reason these kinds of events happen on a campus at the entrance to the school was actually to be seen by others as they arrived. You'll read the literature. I I went back and read literature on CU at the poll events even today, nearly 30 years later. And it's still advertising, you know, do it at the poll where non-Christians will see you care. And, you know, where where Christians will, will be prodded into joining in, where we can all then put on a, well, they don't use the word, put on a show. Right? As if the point was to be seen, instead of to pray to the Father who sees in secret. It's, it's not that Jesus is condemning all public prayer here. It's not that he's doing that. Jesus himself prayed in public. We know from the New Testament, book of Acts, that the early church prayed sometimes in public. We know that God actually commands his church when we gather publicly as the people of God to pray, which we've already done in this service. And that's commanded by God. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 sometime. So Jesus isn't saying you can never pray in public. He isn't saying you could never pray over your meal at a restaurant. He isn't saying you could never pray at a prayer meeting. He isn't saying you can never pray in church together with others. That's not his point. But his point is what? Why are you doing it that way? Do you want other people to see you? Is that why you do it? Don't be a hypocrite, Jesus says, who puts on a mask of religious piety and zeal so that others will think you're special. So, don't pray like a hypocrite. Second, he says, don't pray like pagans. Now you see that in verse 7. Don't try to manipulate God in prayer like pagans do. This is how he puts it. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. What are they doing? They're using meaningless repetition. They're piling up words. They're babbling on. Jesus says, don't do that. He describes the pagans of his time who did this in their prayers as as people who had a superstitious view of God. Perhaps they thought, you know, if I just pile up phrases and repeat them mindlessly and endlessly, it'll finally break through the brass ceiling and get into heaven and do something. (laughs) As if God was a genie in the bottle and you could just scratch his belly and he would pop out and do what you want him to do if you just scratch him the right way or often enough. And that is not what prayer is, Jesus says. What is prayer? Prayer is spiritual conversation with your Father in Heaven. Prayer is a child talking to his Heavenly Father about things that matter to you and things that matter to Him. 
it's not a mantra. It's not like some Eastern meditation practices where you just focus on some word and say it again and again till you get yourself in the right frame of mind and then that will change you or affect fate or the deities. But prayer is an opportunity for you to have fellowship on earth with your Father who is in heaven. And Jesus says these pagans who pray this way, who babble, who use mantras, who repeat phrases, they don't understand the goodness of God. If they understood that God was good, they would know that they didn't have to try to manipulate him by the way that they pray. I mean, think of the different ways in the people, the pagans will try to manipulate God. Maybe uh, if you remember the story from 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, when Elijah the prophet uh, uh, put the prophets of Baal, the uh, false god, to the test to see who was the true god. They, they cut a bull in half and they put it on the altar and then they called down fire from heaven. They prayed. Whoever's god answered with fire and burned up the bull was the true god. Now, how did the prophets of Baal go about this? It says they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud. And they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. This was a way of getting God to know you're earnest. And as midday passed, it says, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered No one paid attention. They babbled on and on with great earnestness, but they weren't talking to their Father in heaven. They weren't children by faith of Him. So they were trying to manipulate the gods. That's easy to pick on forms of paganism like that. But what about ways in which we Christians act pagan? Even in our prayers. I mean, this is what we're repenting of, right? Think of the mindless use of a rosary in which nothing happens but the fingers go around the beads while the mouth lip or the lips uh, mouth words. Rather than concentrating the heart and the mind on the prayer request, you've actually distracted your heart and mind. Perhaps, not in all cases, but perhaps. So that you think when you're done with it, well, the words have been said, so it ought to be heard. Or think of the mindless repetitions of the Lord's Prayer, practiced in all kinds of churches, where we simply recite by rote, without heart engagement, our Father. Or... Uh, anytime we think that the more we say in prayer, the more likely we are to be heard. We have to ask ourselves, what kind of God do we believe in 
if we think he's impressed by the mechanics of prayer or by the volume of words or the number of hours spent, says John Stott. Jesus is not, look, he's not condemning all repetition in prayer. He himself, you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he went away from his disciples to a private place and he prayed for a third time the same thing as he prayed twice previously. Father, if it be your will, remove this cup from me. Jesus isn't condemning all repetition in prayer. Jesus is not condemning all long prayers. I mean, Christ himself prayed all night long on some occasions. There are many long prayers recorded for us in the Old Testament. All the Psalms are prayers. Some of them are really long. And there are long other prayers. His point again is not that you can never have repetition of words. His point is not that you can never have a long prayer. But why do you do what you do? What do you think you're doing? How are you relating to God as you do it? Christians are not heard by God because we have a good formula in prayer. We're heard because we have a good father. And Jesus is calling us to believe in the goodness of that father. And so I know some of us think, you know, well, I don't think this. You'll you'll know why when you hear it. If I rise early, pray on my knees in the cold without coffee, then God will hear me. I don't believe that. I don't want to believe that's true. And I don't believe that's true. But some people do. The harder it is. We may not be seeking God at all. You might very well be. I'm just asking you to ask why. It could be we're trying to manipulate God by our self-imposed pietism. Some of you know of the Moravian community of Hernhut in Saxony under Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Maybe you've heard of uh, the accounts of his um, ministry among the people there. By all accounts, he was a godly man. In 1727, he began a round-the-clock prayer watch that continued nonstop for over 100 years years. Dozens of men and women every week signed up to take an hour-long watch, day or night, for the purpose of prayer so that somebody was praying 24 hours a day and that community carried it on for 100 years. I mean, if you hadn't heard of this, you've heard of it now. You'll never forget it. But look, easy for me to critique when I don't know a soul who was involved personally. But it was based on a bad interpretation and application of the Old Testament ceremonial law from Leviticus chapter 6 verse 13 which said fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually it shall not go out. And so what they did is they took that expression about the fire on the altar that burned up the burnt offering about it not going out, and they said, let's apply that to prayer, and our prayers should not go out. Now, it's a misapplication of that law. It's not talking about prayer. 
the purpose of the fire was to burn up the whole burnt offering and after that fire, and, and not after, that fire was extinguished by God. When? When the true whole burnt offering, Jesus, the Lamb of God, went to the cross on our behalf and once for all satisfied all the Father's requirements in our place on behalf of sinners. And then he rose from the dead as our great high priest to always live to intercede for us. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's never away at the bathroom. He never goes away on a long journey. He's always actively interceding for us. Nothing wrong with praying. Nothing wrong with praying at any time of the day you please. Nothing wrong with committing yourself to certain hours of the day to pray. If that's what you wish to do, Jesus would say in secret. But there is something superstitious about thinking one local congregation must have every member awake at every hour of the day devoted to prayer. Our Jesus is awake at every hour of the day, always living to intercede for you. And so there's freedom for the saints to sleep. You have utter freedom to break up your sleep, to pray whenever you want. But there is freedom for the saints to lie down their head and rest because God is on his throne. Jesus cares for his people and he's always looking out for you. Now, if you're a mom or a dad, you believe this. I suppose when you go to sleep at night, (laughs) you're not up all night long praying every moment for the kids who need you to pray for them every moment. But you can't do it. We're weak, but Jesus is a great Savior. I'm just saying, look, it, it may be we have pagan ideas about what's going on when we pray. Now, I've already offended some of you. You're absolutely stunned that the preacher in some way critiqued a prayer meeting that went on. 24, 7, 365, 100 years. Right? I'm not saying they were all insincere. That God didn't hear them. That they weren't children of God. I'm just saying most of us care more about the outward piety of those people than the inward sincerity of their hearts. We're impressed by the activity, not by the secrecy. And that's the spirit of hypocrisy in us and Jesus came to free us from that he doesn't want us then to breed that in others so don't pray like hypocrites don't pray like pagans how should we pray two points first pray to your father in secret verse 6 but when you pray Go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So don't pray with pride like the Pharisees. Don't pray with fear like the pagans. Don't pray for the approval of others or to arm twist God. But pray honestly to God, sincerely, genuinely, as children to a heavenly father in secret. The best way to guard your heart is to pray in secret. The best way to keep yourself from being or becoming increasingly so a hypocrite is to pray in secret. The best way for a preacher who prays a long prayer 
every Sunday in public. The best way for him to avoid being a hypocrite is for that not to be the longest prayer of his week or the only prayer of his week. In secret, he says, your father, he's in secret, he says. Just you and him. The language here in in this, the Greek words are singular. He's thinking of private prayer here. When you, singular, pray, you go into your closet, pray to your father. He's emphasizing the, the private, personal prayer life here. He will, in just a moment, at verse 9, turn to the, the public, communal prayers of the people when he says, our father in heaven. But here he's talking about the private and personal. Just you, alone with God, talking with God. You'll be at your most sincere then. And that secrecy then is a guard to our hearts and motivations. Second, so pray to your father in secret. Second, pray to your father in secret as children who trust in his goodness and care. And you see that at the end of verse 6 and verse 8. End of verse 6, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He's reminding you of God's goodness and care for you as a motivation to prayer. And He's really, I think, highlighting at least two motivations for prayer here. The first is, what? Because God knows everything. He knows what you need before you ask Him. He sees in secret. He knows what you need. Now, you and I are so quick to think, perhaps... Well, if he already knows what I need, why pray to him at all? Why bother, right? That's the logic of fallen humans, but it's not the Bible's logic at all. The Bible's logic is actually the opposite of that. The Bible's logic is actually he does know all things, therefore go to him with your need. He knows what you need, therefore go to him with those needs. He knows what you need. He cares about what you care about. And so you're motivated to go to him. Why would you, after all, go to a God in prayer who didn't know what you were talking about? He's as ignorant as you are. Or a God who couldn't do anything about it. He's as weak as you are. But nothing is hidden from your father. He's not stumped by anything. He's the very best person to go to in prayer. As a very, I think I've told you this, as a very young Christian in college, just learning my way uh, in walking with the Lord and learning to pray, one day I was walking across the intramural field, massive green field, larger than anything you've seen uh, here in Siloam, uh, big university of 15,000 at the time. So you got all this grass everywhere. And I was on my way to class, and I was late. I had forgotten to bring something to write with, and I was going to need a pen or a pencil for sure. And I didn't have time to stop and get one, and I was all alone. And I just prayed, Father, I need a pen or a pencil. And I took about four or five more steps at most, and I looked down, and there was exactly what I needed, a perfectly functioning pen. It was such a quick and small, I mean, wouldn't you say, a pen thing, but such a, such a sweet answer to prayer and an encouragement to keep praying. God knew what I needed. Now, sometimes I imagine that 
that answer to prayer was also the answer to another person's prayer for safety, you know, on the field. Because, I mean, who wants to dive and, you know, get a pen in your chest? Exactly, right? I mean, so somebody's praying for safety. Somebody's praying for pens. The Lord brought it all together and answered the prayer. He, He knows what we need. That's not a reason not to pray. It's a reason to pray. Take prayers for healing. Sometimes what you need is for him to say yes. And, and yes immediately. And he says yes immediately. And he heals you. Sometimes you ask, but what you really need to learn is to endure hardship in faith. And so he says, I'll help you now, but I'll heal you later. Sometimes you ask, and he says no. And his no is really what you need. Because he wishes to take you out of this world and home to himself in glory. I assume that will be true for all of us. At some time, if Jesus doesn't return, he always knows what we need. It may not be what I thought I needed, but I'm invited to take my needs to him and talk to him about it. The second motivation Jesus gives us here is not just that our Father in heaven knows what we need before we ask it. The second motivation is his goodness. He, it says, rewards his children Verse 6, your father who sees in secret will reward. This isn't, don't misunderstand, some kind of legal transaction where you've put God in your debt and he's duty-bound, duty obligated to repay you. This is gospel. This is a father who's looking at his child who delights to freely and generously give them good things when they ask. And that kind of gospel motivation ought to motivate us. How do, how do we go to the Lord when we pray? Do we go timidly? Do we go half questioning in our hearts? Will he be good enough to give me what I need? Jesus says, remember that the Father will give you better than you could ever hope. He cares more about you and more about what concerns you than you care about you. How would we know that? You didn't even know you needed Christ to die on the cross for your sins, but the Father knew that 2,000 years ago. He's way ahead of you. What would the reward be? Not a snow cone, not a trophy, not public applause, but how about this? You asked to meet with God for Him to lend you His ear. And God comes and He meets with you. And he listens to you. He hears you. You get an audience with him. And he promises the reward of his presence with you. And sometimes it's just knowing that he's for you and with you and cares is really all that you really needed. Or perhaps the reward is this. You asked him to meet some need and you have the joy of seeing God meet that need. I remember being blown away in college again as a young believer. Our small group had just studied Romans 8, 31 and 32. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If he's given us Jesus, he isn't hiding some other lesser good thing behind his back playing keep away. He's open-handed and generous. He gave me his son, his son for me. So we've been discussing that text. I think it was the first time I'd ever really been taught the text. And then our Bible study uh, leader uh, had us share prayer requests and then go off on our own to pray about those things. And we were at Winton Woods outside of Miami University. And I went off into the woods and stood by a tree. And I prayed for the prayer request of my friend Dave, who later went on to be the best man in my wedding and I in his. Dave was going to go into full-time Christian ministry when he got out of college, and he was about to meet a potential supporter, donor to the ministry to raise all his own missionary support. And, and, uh, and so he was, he was kind of nervous and anxious and excited, and he said, would you pray about that? And I went and I prayed, and I prayed, and for whatever reason, I thought, I had this profound conviction, I should ask the Lord to give him $100 a month from these people. Now, like 30 years ago, that's at least $200. In my mind, it's like $300, whatever. It's a, it's a substantial sum of money to give to a missionary every month for an indefinitely long period of time. Later that week, I saw Dave at the campus meeting of our Christian group, and he said, he was so excited. He said, you can't believe it. I, I met with them, and they, and they said they would give me $100 a month. And I was just floored. And I just took a step back and I had to sit down on the stage. I was just amazed. I believed, Lord, but help my unbelief, right? Look, I didn't dictate it and God didn't like mechanically decide, well, we'll answer that one. But I prayed as a child to my Father in Heaven and I del- here's the point. What a, what a thrill. What a joy. What a delight. To see the Lord answer prayer. That is all the reward I have ever needed for that prayer. It's a privilege just to tell you that story. May it, may it be an encouragement to you. You've, you've seen God answer various kinds of prayers for you. What a thrill to get what you've asked for. Jesus knows we're tempted to doubt the goodness of God. We doubt his concern for us about the little things. And our Heavenly Father says, bring them to me. Bring your cares and concerns to me. I already know about them. I'm already concerned about them. I care about them more than you know. And when you pray, I will answer your prayer better than you prayed it. Because I am wiser than you and I'm more loving than you. So let me ask you, have you failed at prayer (laughs) do you find yourself continually failing at prayer even praying just for yourself just the easiest thing to do your hope isn't in you your hope isn't even in starting to pray again though you'll be welcomed your hope is in who jesus your great high priest who is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for you. Are you weak in praying? Not sure what to ask for when you do? Your hope is not you and not your words. Not getting it right. 
Your hope is the Spirit who helps us in our weakness, Paul says. For we don't know what we ought to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Just bring your grunts into the presence of God about some issue. You're not on your own. Jesus intercedes for you. The Spirit groans for you. The Father loves and cares for you. What great reasons then to pour out your heart to this God. Let's pray. Father, teach us to pray. And forgive all our failures of it. Because you're good and gracious. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.